to Between the Sheets, Patreon, episode number 28. I'm your host, Chris Zona. Joining as always, my co-host, David Bixens fan. And Bix, we have a interesting Patreon episode this month as we go back in time 30 years. It's hard to believe. 1989 is 30 years ago. Good Lord of mercy. Yep. And this is this is a topic that you came up with this time out, which I, I think is a very good one and probably one that is not examined enough outside of Jim Cornette's various recollections about it. And between the sheets, sometimes, you know, because we've talked about some of this well, stuff. Well, we've huh? talked, I feel like we've talked about the stuff, but we haven't actually covered the period that much. No, I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, we've we've covered some weeks during the time period, but a couple maybe, but uh, not like it's going to be covered here. Let's put it that way. Nope. As we, as we are discussing the two-month, over two-month uh, reign of George Scott as the booker of the National Wrestling Alliance for uh, Universal Wrestling Corporation, or Turner, the future WCW. And uh, he came in at a time when there was a lot of, um, I would say unrest, but there was a lot of uh, scrambling around, I guess, because, uh, you know, they had... They have what blackjack mulligan they were bringing in. We're going to talk about mulligan here because like, I haven't read the notes. Mulligan comes in as one of his assistants. Mulligan, I don't think was. I I know the story you're talking about about Mulligan like maybe being brought in very briefly as the interim booker, but that's not really covered here. I know what you're talking about. I'm not even sure if that story's true, but basically you, your background is this: Dusky gets fired as booker after gigging himself during the uh, Road Warrior Spike Angle. Yes. Is still on as a wrestler, but quits. Yeah. Quits in January. Yes. When he got fired as Booker, Jim Crockett Jr. took over as interim Booker slash head of the steering committee. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I forgot you were going to do that. And then, though, they still want to find a new Booker and... Jim Hurd gets brought on. Well, and, Larry Maddox involved in a way. Well, Larry was a... Uh, so Larry at first, I think, was in consideration for Hurd's role. Then Hurd gets hired, and Larry was one of the people in consideration for Booker. But then it ends up being George Scott, who... Okay, at this point, he has not worked in wrestling at all in, what, about two years? Two years. Since he did World Class. Before that... You know, he had left WWF a few months before the World Class run. And, you know, I mean, the weird thing about WWF hiring him is that he had not really been doing much before then for a while. No. He had left Crockett when, 80? He left Crockett in 81 and went to Georgia. And uh, he, he was in Georgia for a while. Didn't light the world on fire there, for sure. And then went and let, went to work from Leroy McGuirk. Of all places, yes. Of all places. And, and, and that was the end of Leroy McGuirk's promotion. Yes. And, and then that, after, after, after they closed up... I don't think he goes anywhere, basically, for three years. Pretty much. Or close to it. Well, we don't know. Um, you never know where guys were at, you know. Um, as far as we know, he's not the head booker of anywhere. I may have, I don't know if this is true, but I think I may have read somewhere that he, he actually booked Puerto Rico at one point in that time period. 
So I, I could be wrong on that, but well, we don't yeah. know a lot about the W WC bookers, especially in that era. Yeah. So still, though, WWF had picked him up mainly. At least I think it was Melser who told me this years ago when I did that Fighting Spirit article that the reason WWF had picked up George Scott was they felt like they needed someone who could lay out a three shows a night promotion. So they figured yeah, he had done that for Crockett, so he makes sense for us to bring him on. And his role, I guess, was really more house show booker and running the locker rooms on the TV tapings to some degree than actual booker is we're familiar with it because Vince, Vince is the booker. Well, yeah, Vince a fat, yes. Yes. So anyway, gets fired from WWF after some sort of political showdown with Hogan. <clears throat> Doesn't light the world on fire in world class, to say the least. Most infamously, turning Bam Bam Bigelow, the hottest unsigned wrestler in the business, into Crusher Yarkov. Somehow arranges a deal with them in WWF for a talent sharing that basically just results in Steamboat working the Cotton Bowl. And I think you mentioned George Wells was technically part of that as well. It sure seemed that way. <laughs> but Tony Atlas comes in, so yeah, there's guys that are coming in from WWF. Leaving them have to go world class, right? Other least. than right, at the very least, it's a pipeline on top of Steamboat, and yeah, after he loses the job because he's doing a shitty job, he doesn't really do anything in wrestling until he's hired for this position in early '89. And the thing you got to look at here is um, where he's. I mean, going here, I mean the the guys that are on top, Flair, Steamboat, who's just not coming in, um. And the guys like Perry win them and stuff. They had worked with George Scott years ago. So there's a connection there. So George Scott made Ric Flair and Ricky Steen, but what they were basically. I mean, he's the guy that pushed them. Yes, although, and I'm not using this as a knock on him, but we should also know too, George Scott's rep is not necessarily as a creative booker as much as someone who puts guys into place and knows when to let wrestlers book their own programs. That's fair, yes. That's definitely fair. So Now, if you can get what you need out of them, there's nothing wrong with that. No. But, on top of other issues we'll discuss later, not necessarily what this company needed. Exactly. Well, let's get going. The next week here, Observer, cover March 1st, Matt Watch covers February 20th, published week of February 20th. We head to Cleveland! Hello, Cleveland. But it's February 15th, Clash of the Champions 5 show. Officials, the TV show, Clash of the Success, and that received a 4.6 rating and 7 share at 2.17 million homes, which is better than the projected 4.0. Ironically, that's what Titans especially a few weeks back on NBC, and unlike most wrestling shows, once again, the range didn't rise throughout. The show started at 4 in rows, even during the Butch rematch. It peaked at a 5.1 with a player Steamboat Angle. At that point, ironically, during Lex Luger's match, the thing fell to a 4.4 and stayed there until peaking up to a 4.8 during the last 30 minutes. Second highest ratio of any kind of cable television up until this point in 1989, trailing only the Pro Bowl on ESPN. Our thumbs up, thumbs down poll will then respond to the margin of error of about 100%. At 25 thumbs up, 42.2%, 35 thumbs down, 59.8%. You know, this indicates a mixed reaction. Most of what I heard was a strong reaction. Those who liked it generally liked it a lot, and those who didn't like it, and I followed in this group, really hated the thing. The other funny thing is almost all the talk was the same. And my feeling is those who expect nothing and were comparing the show to a normal Saturday TBS show liked it. Mainly because of the Flair Steamboat angle. Those who compared it and were expecting a good house show with good wrestling matches hated the thing despite the angle. 
Fisher the card drew about 5,000 fans in Cleveland in the 10,000 seat building. Although I'm sure 5,000 is significantly paper. All right. Um, I'm surprised anyone liked this show. Yes. Uh, this, <laughs> this was not good at all. Uh, George Scott, I mean, for a live show on prime time, this should have been something that, you know, should have been building up your pay-per-view you have just less than a week later. You should be doing all kinds of stuff on this show to build that up, to promote that. And we get, other than Flair Steam, but we basically get nothing. Nothing at all. Well, we get the end of the uh, All Japan relationship, but we'll talk more about that. Yes, let's talk, go over the review highlights here. Jim Cornette's Midnight Express down the Russian assassins at 1314. You knew things were going to get off on the right foot when Jack Reynolds, who's being considered by TBS to be the new announcer to replace Tony Schiavone, until his performance ring announcer here, started with an are we on question, and then announced the Russians as being from Kilos, Russia, at a combined weight of 288 pounds. Half a star. <laughs> Why? Jack Reynolds in 1989, Biggs. Why? I can tell you why. Because George Scott worked with him in the WWE. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and he sucked in. Oh. Kilos Russia. <laughs> See, if, now, if it had been Kilos Columbia, I might would have, uh, uh, you know, seen that. Uh, but, Jesus Christ. And also, okay, well, okay, Cleveland, at least, Jack Reynolds is from there, right? Yes, yes. He's so, but still, okay, I get that he's local, but if you're trying him out as an announcer, as a TV announcer, why are you using him as a ring announcer? I don't know. I can't answer that question. I don't know. It makes no sense. But what do you expect from uh, from this company? Yeah, so that, that gets 13 minutes. Next. <laughs> Butchery pin Stephen Casey. Ah. In 1736, after a flying shoulder block. The most action in this match was provided by a couple in the front row. And let's not forget Steve Casey's white tights. Both guys were, were really looked bad here. Well, Casey did. Slow pace, bad execution, awful. And to make it worse, they went nearly 18 minutes to put the thing on television. You have to work faster on television in the arenas because of the difference in the psychology of arena fans versus TV viewers. This is not the kind of match that should ever on television. Negative one star. Why? It just this. Should, I mean, this is a George Scott show, folks. So if you want to get the full George Scott thing, is is this clash? It makes no fucking sense. None. Uh, so Chris, I pulled it up, and first of all, uh, look at Jack Reynolds here. If well, if you second screen me, I wouldn't be able to look at. Oh uh, well, wait. It's not second screening you. Okay. No. It's a stupid different version of Skype I had to use. Okay, forget it. I'll just play. The, well, listen, listen to him. Ladies and gentlemen, introducing. He's got a great voice. Kilos, Russia, with a combined weight of two hundred eighty-eight pounds, <laughs> along with their manager, Paul Jones, the Russian assassin. Yep. He's so confident. They were both. He's so confident in that Kilos Russia too. And boy, is this arena dark! Oh my god, <laughs> two hundred eighty-eight pounds. 
Angel Death it weighs well, 300 plus. Jack Victor weighs 300 plus. 288 pounds combined. I want to see if we can catch the are we on. Clash theme. <laughs> anyway I don't know alright uh, where are we going from here Lex Luger oh. <laughs> alright Lex Luger who finally appears on television wrestles the blackmailer why which is Jack Vineyard in her gimmick mass gimmick why wrestling twice <laughs> And 12 feet through at their superplex. Guess what? They spent the match working on the left arm. This earlier 70 styles drive me crazy because today's fans don't understand it nor believe in it one star. It makes no sense. Not a not a bit of sense. Why is Why? Jack Victory wrestling twice? <sighs> you have all this talent in this company and you have Jack Victory wrestling twice. Uh, we need the way. I don't know. Because I really don't, I, I don't know. Well, also, I mean, it's a mask. It, I mean, I, I forget if I actually include in the notes that, that there's a joke made at some point in the newsletters around this time that Jack Victory is the only only wrestler in the company. <laughs> but if it's a mask, if it's like <laughs> you put someone else there anyway, and there's nothing against Jack Victory. No, not at all. <sighs> And you got, I mean, and, and the, there was never a blackmailer on television. This is his only appearance as the blackmail. Yes. <sighs> the main event was supposed to be the Road Warriors and Gitenu Gurichiro defending the six man tag titles against Sting, Junk Food Dog, and Michael Hayes. But as they were doing an interview with Sting's team, they went back to do more preparing, and Kevin Summit locked them in their dressing room. This was done because folks at the NBA were scared to death that Sting would get booed on national television and face the Road Warriors. It was creative, but I didn't like it because fans of Cleveland who paid for the show, from what I was told, were really mad about being screwed out of the advertised main event. And then they made a little bad, and that took forever to unlock the dressing room door, but there's no back door in the building. Anyway, the varsity club come out, the Sting's music is playing, and start brawling and tennis start a match. Referee rang the bell, and they tagged in and out. I see it now. I see, I see the screen, Bix. Okay. Tenry wasted a nice long trip. Finally, Sting and company were unlocked, but it took them forever to get to the ring. I thought they were locked in Pittsburgh and were taken in a cab. It took so long. Maybe that escalator which said dogs must be carried. So JFD had to be picked up. <laughs> Finally, at 5 3 Sting coming ran in. They had a nine-way and went to a commercial star and a quarter. All right. Let's, let's take this in. <sighs> yes. Because I think we have to. We don't do this a lot on the Patreon shows. I think this is one where we have to. Look at Hayes' look on his face. Well, I, I paused it in an opportune time. <laughs> I, I don't think he was that wasted. No. Ain't that right, dog? You said you need a bone. How about a world belt? We got one big bone back down south. Right back home to Atlanta. Right back home. This guy's got more energy when he's asleep than most people got when they're awake. He needs a bone, and I got something to prove. Hey. They're going back down to the dressing room right now. They're going to make their last-minute plans. As they talk over just what they're going to do and how they're going to go against the world. Wait a minute, Kevin Sullivan. Kevin, what are you, what are you doing here, Kevin? Hold on a minute. I don't think your dressing room's down there, Kevin. What are you doing? 
Kevin, wait a minute. Fancy's putting a chain or something around that gate. And Kevin, he's locking the gate. Kevin, no, no, wait a minute. They got to come back out of there. They got to go to the ring and wrestle right now. All the rest are corners. Kevin Sullivan, we talked about how even he was in there. They locked down. It's the only understand. We got a major problem here. We got to try to figure out what we're going to do. Get the building superintendent or someone. Right now, let's take a break. Hayes climbing it. Okay, so to help everyone visualize this, you know how you might, ugh, I don't even know like where this would be common, but you know how some stairwells will have like a, a like cage gate thing that'll seal it off? That's what Kevin Sullivan closed and locked because theoretically their locker room was downstairs. And they can't get out because, I mean, even setting aside the back door thing that Dave mentioned, I guess the building doesn't have any maintenance people with bolt cutters? Well, they got out. Well, not out. get out in time, though. Oh, my God. And although didn't include any items about this, because it does list a little longer, but this was arguably the main catalyst for Baba cutting ties because he didn't understand why a match that included some of his wrestlers, I mean, because, you know, Road Warriors are still regulars in all Japan at this point, and it's not just Tenru, why a title match couldn't just be delayed because wrestlers got locked in a room. <sighs> do you think this was a George Scott idea, or do you think this was George Scott letting someone go with their idea? <clears throat> he gets the blame. He's a booker. Oh, he gets the blame either way, but I don't, of I don't, course. I don't, it doesn't matter, matter who it is. No, 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 that's not my point. He gets, it doesn't gets matter. No, 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 I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm saying it is his responsibility. But from a creative that point of view... Over, overrides everything. doesn't matter. But who do you think came up with it? I don't I'm just know. asking. It doesn't matter. You. Okay. He, yeah, it doesn't matter. <laughs> okay. He signed off on it. So whoever did it, he, it's his fault. It sucks. Anyway, moving on. <clears throat> it's. This whole show is so bad. And, and we talk about Luger. Sting's another guy who, you know, had that hot 88, and then you go in 89, and he's just there. You have two of the hottest young stars in the country, and Luger and Sting. Three! Wyndham! Yeah, but Wyndham's U.S. champion. Sure. Okay, I get what you're saying. Wyndham is a different story. L I mean, Luger and Sting are two of the hottest young stars in the country. And George Scott has, has knows nothing to do with them, guys. Nothing. He hasn't basically worked mid-card until he has Luger go over and win them at the Rumble. You know... Sting is lucky that Eddie Gilbert ended up on the booking team. I mean, I think he would have recovered anyway with the change in power, regardless. Well, Flair. I mean, Flair. Well, let's put it this way. That it's that Flair, Gilbert, and Jim Ross all end up in power is very good for him. Well, yes. Yes. Wow. Almost every match was that left arm style and didn't work once. I take that back. It does with the road works because nobody's ever seen them sell the body part so hell before. So it makes their foes look good. And the fans do get into that, but everyone else, it comes off as rest holds. Reading cases were bad, but the worst part about it was the decision it would go so long. Cornette was wasting this show and needed an interview, particularly after his team was involved in such a bad opening match. Steamboat's match, and we didn't even mention who he worked. Yes. Who Steamboat wrestled? Who did he wrestle? Um. Oh, it was it was a job guy level or close. Hold on, I'm checking. It wasn't Jack Victory, was it? 
No. Okay, Closet Champions 5. Because, yeah, I just put the highlights in as far as Dave. Bob Bradley! Super bad! Yeah. The cat. Yeah. Yeah. That happened. Anyway. And, and, again, and, and I would have had all the matches of the show here, which you didn't have. But, I mean, you had uh, Return and Doc against the Fantastics was a match. Well, I didn't put everything because this is just in particular a very busy week. You had Rick Steiner and Rick, Rick Morgan in the match. That's your clash. Midnight's Russian Assassins, Reed Casey, Luger Blackmailer, Return the Daughters Fantastics. Okay, I, understand. I, can, I, I can make that one. Steamboat and Bob Bradley, Rick Steiner, Rip Morgan, and then the Six Man. Yes, and the fl- and they do a reprise of the Flair Steamboat suit tearing angle from '78. Well, yeah, with flares in his fur coat and all that stuff. So, and all those matches make no sense except for one, basically. <laughs> and this is five days before the pay per view. Yes. Is this the last During time the match- they do a clash and a pay-per-view so close <clears throat> together until 92? Yeah. During the match, the fans are chanting, we want Flair in heavily. <clears throat> after the angle that this was needed in his same Flair interview, when they did the same thing in 78, it was Flair's interview in his underwear after the incident and made it there in classic. By all accounts, Flair was completely placing Cleveland as well, while Steamboat wasn't a heel, but more a neutral party. Family unit. To hear this entire show, support Between the Sheets on Patreon for just $5 per month. Go to patreon.com slash between the sheets.